Hi there, thanks for downloading the latest episode of the Fantasy Animation Podcast. You can find out more at fantasy-animation.org as well as via our social media channels on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at fananimresearch, F-A-N-A-N-I-M research. If you like what you see, then please do support the show by subscribing, liking and reviewing the show. A quick written review, five stars, would be really, really helpful. It helps make the visibility of the programme even more. It helps us reach more listeners and it helps justify what we're doing to our employers. Um, So please, please take a minute out of your life to help the show. It would really help us create more content for you. Otherwise, sit back, relax and enjoy the latest episode. everyone and welcome to another episode of the Fantasy Animation Podcast. I'm Alex Sargent. And I'm Chris Holliday. And today, Chris, it's time to return to a franchise that I'm pretty sure when we did the first instalment we said we'll do the next one soon. Well, if soon sure. is an entire global pandemic away, then uh, we're, we're, uh, we're, we're re-returning to The Two Towers. Um, yes. Uh, a film I really love. I think it's a bit divisive among Lord of the Ring fans, but I would go out on the limb and say it's my favourite of the three. Um, so I'm excited to talk about it in a film I've seen lots of times, and I'm sure it's the same for you, isn't it? Well, I would say, given the length of this movie, there's a good chance I probably started watching this when we finished doing The Fellowship of the Ring. It's only just come to an end. So um, here we are, however many years later, and I finally finished the final sequence of the film. Uh, yeah, so I was saying just before we came on, I'm not I'm not a Lord of the Rings aficionado in the same way that you or our very special guests are. Um, so I'm, I'm going to be playing the role of Alex uh, in this episode because I'm going to be wading through some characters and some settings. I, I think I said this when we did the first Lord of the Rings, is that I have been to these places in real life and I have got on a boat and done some whitewater rafting down a lot of some of the... This is the tour guide in me speaking, sure. going through all of these locations. So I'm I'm interested in the kind of the use, again, of New Zealand to ground some of these visual effects. And actually, I'm more interested in the rhetoric of, of animation beyond these kinds of... Um, uh, be, with with regards to these movies, the ways in which um, they're renowned for the visual effects, but they work really hard to... to to talk about how these actors fly to the New Zealand and do things there, mm-hmm. there on the ground. So I've got kind of yeah, some things to say about that. And then of course Gollum and motion capture and Andy Circus and movement and performance and and all that that usual stuff. Um, yeah, yeah. But I'm I'm going to take a back seat certainly for this no. this episode. And, and for me, I, you know, I've written on this film and I've watched it so many times. There's so many angles one could come at it that it's that's probably yeah. one of the reasons we haven't done it yet. Is that it's where yeah. do, where do we where do we start? So I think we've got a great guest on to help us come at it from a slightly different angle, but. But a, but a no less really interesting one. So yes, we're delighted to be joined by um, Dr. Dan White, who's a senior lecturer at the University of Huddersfield, where he teaches on a variety of different topics in film music theory, screen studies, pop music studies, and aspects of music, gender, and identity. So people might see the theme as it's emerging. Um, his work uh, looks at music and world building in fantasy film franchises. Um, and he has a book uh, under contract with Routledge, which will be coming out soonish. Um, on this topic, particularly in relation to Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter. So you can see why we've got him on the show. So, Dan, <laughs> thank you for coming on the podcast. 
Hello, thank you so much for having me. I've been uh, looking forward to this and you've got some great, great guests already on the roster, so I'm very pleased to be part of them. Well, well, we're pleased to have you, yes. Thank you, yeah. yes. Let, let, we're very pleased to have you on to help us unpack this behemoth <laughs> in so many ways, that is the Two Towers. Um, so as listeners might have gleaned from your introduction, you've come at these films primarily from, from music and music theory, which is, I think, us, me and Chris, as kind of classic film studies people, we're very guilty at treating films <laughs> silently yeah. quite often, right? And, and I think it's good that we, we, we think about this because the score of these movies is such an important part of why they resonate. So... I mean, other than those kind of obvious beats, what got you interested in thinking about music and world building in relation to, to the to the Lord of the Rings franchise more broadly, I guess? Yeah, I think um, it comes largely from some of my sort of postgraduate and then PhD study. I was always interested in sort of film music and music in media more widely. Um, and, you know, quite liked the Lord of the Rings films. They're, I think they're pretty good um, and enjoyed watching them and particularly enjoyed the music. And so in terms of my own listening tastes, I was already quite familiar with um, Howard Shaw's music for the three uh, Lord of the Rings films and started to look more deeply uh, in a more analytical way in terms of kind of world building, how Howard Shaw puts together quite a detailed um, and, and sort of complex web of interrelated themes um, for not just one film, but the kind of overarching trilogy uh, of films and just became really intrigued as to sort of how that worked. Um, and some of the instances where it wasn't quite as sort of clear cut, it wasn't just sort of Mickey Mousing or just providing a, a theme whenever that character comes on the, on the screen, but actually how some of those musical themes um, interrelated as well. So it was, I suppose that's what kind of kicked off my interest in these particular themes, sorry, these particular films um, musically, because the music's pretty good, <laughs> I think. And it's it's garnered a kind of a, a significant following, a significant fandom as well, the, the music and the scores and the extended kind of uh, complete recordings as well. So uh, looking at it from a fandom perspective as well is really interesting, people and how they kind of relate to this music, what role it plays for them in their lives. So, yeah, I think it's fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. And, I, and I'm really interested in unpacking this with you i mean i'm no i'm no music expert i don't suppose chris is a music expert unless he's been hiding something from me from about 110 episodes um so we might be playing the luddite role here but um i'm interested in some of the things you're saying there that what i do know about it or at least i've garnered from interviews with howard shaw is that one of the key things he was interested in doing is kind of playing with or, or using music as a mode of storytelling or at least that's how he presents it to his um to to the listeners of these things right so mm. If anyone mm. is familiar with Lord of the Rings, I think one of the key aspects of the music is that almost each character or each there's there's lots of light motifs going on in the score, right? And there's almost like it can almost get parodic at occasion where we have like you know the scene with the two hobbits, we have one theme. The scene with the Fellowship, here's the Fellowship theme, um, and that kind of that seems to be the structuring force behind some of these movies. Mm. It sounds like you're interested yeah. in both looking at that more deeply and complicating it a little bit. Um, and I was very mm. interested in that term Mickey Mousing you just used because I don't know what it means. <laughs> uh, and I reckon we're going to be interested in unpacking that a little bit. So, um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I think uh, for me, looking at the sort of the compositional aspect and the music of these particular films, music is quite clearly working in a number of ways. It, it is building the world and that's what i'm sort of interested in first and foremost so not just not just the musical ideas but also the instruments that are being used to an extent how they've been recorded the production um the voices and the use of voice um even just you know the use of reverb and, and actually how the the music sounds um and what that what that means in terms of world building but yeah also as a narrative agent you know how music is used to tell the story how it's used to kind of 
bring the plot forward at certain points um or to yeah to kind of illuminate certain narrative sort of moments or or to give a real insight into sort of character and characterization and you're right that the the use of sort of leitmotif um it's a kind of a sort of classical hollywood sort of wagnerian um technique that lots of film composers use and and how it shows interesting in his use of leitmotif in that there are actually more themes for for people groups um races or group or specific groups of people in the lord of the rings films than there are for um individual characters um and i think that's why it's interesting because it, it that helps to grow the sense of the scale i think of the the music and the scores and how they're interacting so we don't necessarily have a, a frodo theme a bilbo theme you know a samwise theme but we do have a number of themes related to the shire and to the hobbits and we have a number of themes related to rohan to gondor mordor isengard and actually all of these kind of interrelated sort of groups of agents or groups of people have their groups of themes yeah i just love picking it apart there's like small similarities and differences between for example the elves of lothlorien the elves of rivendell um and kind of how they interrelate and overlap but also how they're significantly different that's less less uh, i guess prominent in this particular film but um yeah even looking at the musicking of men and sort of comparing and contrasting the music for rohan and for gondor um sort of brings up some really interesting things yeah. as well it seems to me as well that sound is not something that comes up as much when we think about the contribution well when we think about fictional worlds as coherent believable authentic not realistic because they're fictional but fictionally real spaces but actually we don't really think about sound well so is this, is this true in in terms of fictional writing on fictional world thinking about fictional world across different media platforms i know your work um sort of embraces transmedia storytelling too so i'm just i'm just wondering certainly the stuff that i've read and encountered and maybe maybe alex has in his research has has, has uncovered bits but mm. my sense is that sound and music isn't something that comes to the forefront when we think about the cohesiveness of a fictional world is that fair is that is that a kind of good summation of where the state of the field is in relation to fictional worlds yeah i think i mean there are some people working in the kind of the in-between spaces um and there's more and more work being done obviously not just on sort of music but also you know sound in terms of kind of sound studies and how that interacts with yeah. cinema um fantasy media particularly um and so obviously i'm working in that space janet halfyard has edited the yes. the um, music of fantasy cinema book which is um, great and so you know various collections are, are like that um, and various other people David Butler working on sort of fantasy cinema also talks about sound quite a bit um, right, right. and music so there's there's people kind of venturing into this space where I'm also finding myself and, and looking at yeah particularly music and sound and I think this sort of diegetic or sort of like inside the world based sound um, is obviously kind of very carefully sort of tailored or recorded or the use of foley for specific sort of effects to give you know gandalf's staff a particular weight or um the sound of the the horn that gimli plays at the end um you know there's a lot of thought and detail gone into that even sort of diegetic music so um the song which eowyn sings at uh Theodred's funeral um which is has been was composed by plan nine who who basically composed all of this sort of diegetic music um within the film uh, and she sings that you know kind of a cappella. it's actually in sort of old english um as a sort of a kind of a prehistory to sort of rohan and, and giving them that sense of uh archaism so 
there's lots of thought obviously gone into the use of sound um as well as music to to sort of tell the story and it also i mean i could talk about this for a while also with regards to the ring the ring in its kind of physicality is also often given voice um, right. in in all three films, and so each time the ring kind of appears, or if it starts to have a, a strong effect over Frodo or the ring racer around, you start to hear these kind of sort of eerie kind of whirring sounds, but you also hear a voice, whether that's a low male kind of black speech voice, or it's um, the seduction of the ring theme. One of the themes that the ring has is a sort of a a, a boy treble singing. <laughs> Um, and it's this kind of uh, luring sort of sound, this kind of, yeah, siren, I suppose, um, kind of luring him to put it on his finger and to, to wield the power. So that kind of seduction, yeah, there's basically sort of sound used all the way kind of throughout to give us a bit of a window into Frodo's kind of subjective space as well. Mm -hmm. So quite often if he's being affected by the ring or by uh, any sort of like powers of darkness, as it were, um, quite often the sound is is muffled or, or even sort of entirely removed uh, in terms of kind of diegetic sound. So it puts us in the same sort of subjective space as Frodo um, to kind of understand, I suppose, some of that, yeah, sort of mental turmoil or, yeah, his kind of inner experience. Mm -hmm. So. That was a long-winded answer no, to that question no, no, no. about hyperrealism. Long-winded is, long -winded is yeah. really interesting. <laughs> I, just because I, I always have trouble with the word realism, so and also, you know, always like to try and disagree with Chris as much as possible. So just to sure. just sure. to trying to trouble that. So if this is a none of this sounds hyper-realistic. In fact, none of this sounds realistic mm. to me. What we mm. <laughs> both what the sounds you are describing and the way you are describing it. So I just was curious. We we often think of you know fictional worlds or we, a lot of writing on fiction worlds worries about these ideas of sort of audiovisual credibility and lo logic and coherence but but sound would you say sound is doing something a bit different in that sphere or is it doing the same thing but in very different ways or you know the, the ability of sounds to i don't know focus on emotion to put us in subjective spaces to to engage in in you know in melody in in, in orchestration you know I, you know there's lots that's very operatic and hyperbolic about this score so do you use that word realism do you think about it in terms of that kind of language or or mm. would you push back on that yeah i mean i think it's 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 perhaps not necessarily a kind of a hyper realism in the way that we've you've mm. mentioned but there's a kind of a cinematic realism obviously there's sort of systems and and tropes and expectations on behalf of the the viewer and the listener um in terms of how you know the interplay between the three elements of the soundtrack so music whether that's diegetic or non-diegetic dialogue sound effects and foley and how they kind of interrelate interrelate um and interact as part of telling the story or building the world and moving things on, how they relate to the mise-en-scene and um, to, to different characters or, or situations and settings. And so, uh, yeah, even sort of places and physical spaces, how how sound is able to give a, maybe give a physical setting a sense of sort of realness. Maybe that's hyper-realness. Maybe it's over-exaggerating some of the the realness so an example that comes to mind having just watched um the two towers again the moment when um uh eowyn sort of runs outside and it's the, one of the first times we hear the the rohan theme on the hardanger fiddle um the theme is very very high in the mix it's kind of that's all we can hear but we also hear very kind of over exaggerated the the wind which rips the flag off the mast off the off the flagpole 
Um, and maybe there's a sense there in which sound is being used to, to highlight this particular moment, not in a realistic sense, um, but yeah, maybe to, to, to bring about, to re-emphasize it for the symbolic meaning, which is, you know, that Rohan is in decline and that um, she then obviously lays eyes on the three kind of, um, the three people sort of coming to Edoras and to uh, help out a little bit. So, yeah, I don't know, maybe there's a sense in which it's not hyper-realism, maybe it's kind of uh, an exaggeration for effect, a kind of a, a hyperbolic um, use of sound, it in, perhaps. It, and it, it focuses the, the listener's attention on space, yeah, on, on the kind of, you know, the, mm. the, the, the feel of, the, of the, the, the flag, things like that. So I guess, I don't know, Chris, I reckon you're going to have some things to say about this, but there's a synergy <laughs> between that and what we might call kind of photorealism, right, which is, you know, you know, quite often films feel visually most realistic when the camera's presence is acknowledged and, and the, the the mediating force of, of the camera is, is part, you know, these things like Birdman or 1917, things like that, where the camera is almost an active agent in the film. They feel more realistic because the film feels filmed. Um, so there's something similar going on in that both of those techniques are about acknowledging the role of, of mediation to anchor us in space time place feeling setting things like that i don't know chris do you have thoughts yeah what well, anchor yes but also to not because presumably fantasy has to fantasy films have to work harder than perhaps yeah. other types of film genres but types of film let's let's go with uh, because of, of the what does what does a particular creature sound like and you hear a lot about the the production of these kinds of movies where they synthesize certain sounds to create the sound of a orc or the sound of a particular kind of creature or mm. whatever, whatever it might be so fantasy films have to work particularly hard but they're also no more or no less fiction than 1917 they're both fiction mm. films but the way that fictionality is signaled is is signaled in in different ways so i'm i'm super interested in, in fictional worlds for for these reasons and because one can have realistic fiction and one can have fantasy fiction but they are still fiction and so that kind mm. of acknowledgement of fictionality is something that really grounds a lot of fictional world fictional world theory and, and the point is that it's trying to get us away from terms like realism as you said and more towards coherency because a fantasy world can be absolutely unrealistic or non-realistic but but feel absolutely authentic and um um uh, coherent and in fact this in, inadvertently leads on to, to something i was going to say about about movement in relation to, to digital effects and it's a so it's a line from so I'll, I'll say the line and then i'll um tie it back to what we're talking about but tom gunning in his um article moving away from the index which cites Gollum as a particular example of the ways we should think about digital technology and almost get over the fact that it's not there in front of the camera because there are other ways that it could read realistically and he says motion therefore need not be realistic to have a realistic effect that is to invite the empath empathic participation both imaginative and physiological of viewers so i quite like the idea that it something doesn't have to be real to be realistic to have a realistic effect and i feel that way about fantasy and particularly kind of sound and and, and music in these kinds of in these kinds of films to respond to some of that as well, and to go back to what you were saying about kind of realistic movement, I think on, yeah, I agree that fantasy often has to work harder in its kind of conjuring or building of a world and, and bringing us into it because the kind of the step into it is more of a leap. It yeah. is more of a, yeah, yeah. Uh, there are more transitional processes required in order to bring us smoothly into a, f a film world, a fantasy world where um, it is perhaps less familiar. It is, there's more kind of, world building to be done yeah yeah yeah. that is both you know visual and through through movement and editing as well as it is through sound at the same time i think fantasy also affords 
the film the ability to to play with some of those subjective spaces because um you know often in a fantasy space flying isn't out of the picture and so having kind of like vast kind of aerial shots or um you know for example it, it could well be that we were being carried by the the claws of an eagle at that point you know in on a big circling shot of Edoras or, or um wherever we are and so i think some of those kind of the ideas about the the impossible subjective space which i think Zizek, um talks about that actually in fantasy that allows us to kind of take a step in and say yeah okay uh, like i can i can believe that this is also possible even not even necessarily consciously but i think some of the work that i've done on lord of the rings also looks at some of those kind of narrative breathing points um where music is perhaps foregrounded alongside like aerial shots of specific locations as kind of a, a sort of a chapter divide say like move from one location to another move from one part of the story to another part of the story in a different part of middle earth and with this kind of aerial shot in between with with a lot of music which is really foregrounded and i think as a as an opportunity to sort of come out of the world and to go back into it um to allow yourself to kind of be decoupled momentarily um and then to to re-enter and i think it's that sort of cycle of suture and desuture really kind of being brought into a world and coming out of it um i think music and sound both play an important role in that alongside some of the other sort of filmic filmic sort of narrative agents as well but it seems like it's it, i'm really interested in that suture and desuture because it seems like again fantasy is just intensifying processes that kind of have to happen in Alex is shaking his head, so that's... Yeah, you're completely wrong. You're completely wrong. Okay. No, no I, I really, I, I... really push back against this idea that all fantasy is doing is working harder than realistic fiction, um, because I think um, uh, Dan is alluding to... Well, I think what, what you're alluding to there and what speaks to me is that, yes, it, 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 there are processes that are similar and there are processes that are intensification, but there's an additional element to fantasy, which is about um, the... Well... This is part of my argument, but uh, the, the kind of the productive use of disbelief, you know, that the, mm -hmm. the, the, the mm -hmm. actually part of the pleasure of going to see of re I mean, we're talking about desuturing and suturing. We, it's important also to obviously this is the second movie. So actually when it's coming out, the kind of the audience has gone through a process of suturing and desuturing and that they've gone to see the Fellowship of the Ring a year ago. Um, is this is this gonna, is this is was that a one hit wonder or is the whole trilogy going to work? Uh, is it is it all going to be okay? Um, in fact, the whole beginning of the movie kind of seems to like, mm. offer a kind of Back to the Future Part Two esque return to the to the film um, through the kind of the fight with the Balrog we never got to see in the first um, movie. Um, uh, so yeah, so I, I just I I think I don't quite know where music fits in with all this because it's not something I've thought through very well. But I I think there's also got to be if if the music is fantastic, like the audio, like the visuals are fantastic, then there's got to be an element by which the film is not necessarily requiring our you know our to us to work harder to believe, but to use disbelief and transcendence and imagination. In a vet, in a different way that that gives it its genre identity. Otherwise, what we're watching is, um, yeah, is King of Thieves or um, uh, Top Gun Maverick. You know, there is there is something about the the contractual uh, alignment between producer and spectator in a fantasy movie like this that mm. says um, you you're not going to believe this, and that's the pleasure in this. So so you know. so does that mean Top Gun Maverick isn't a fantasy film? Um, I haven't seen it, but the spectorial alignment I'm assuming the film asks of the spectator um, 
is not uh, coherent with it's, that. But I would have, I would have to, I, I, as I try to uh, say in my own work, I don't know, I don't, you, you, I can't tell you how you feel about a movie. But if you feel like that about Tov Gun Maverick, then it, it isn't a fantasy movie. Yeah, no, I just because it's a fantasy of, of something, whether it's a political fantasy or a, well, a sure, military but, fantasy or a, but but yeah. I, I suppose now we're doing I, now we're doing isn't is, you know isn't, isn't live action a form of animation like you know we're doing that well, we're doing that game. You know? <laughs> I, I was thinking about your your idea of kind of disbelief and this notion of the willing suspension of disbelief that occurs in all movies versus this issue of kind of intensification. Surely the issue isn't is less disbelief and more the word willing because you are I I. I I like what Dan's saying about the kind of priming, and maybe it's less a fault of the film and more the way that fantasy is sold on the promise of certain kinds of not even genre tropes, but but kind of experiences and the le- and the 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 leap that the step isn't really a step; it's more of a leap. But within that leap, there is a greater degree of tolerance to play with to play with certain kinds of things. So it seems like music is is mediating a lot of and sound, but it's kind of mediating that transition into a fantasy film that is set up that is made willing or unwilling and that music's doing a lot of um mm. in the, it, it performs it's the it's this for me it's kind of sonic equivalent of something like a map at the beginning of the fantasy film or something you know and, and again i know alex has, has um, spoken at length about you know maps because so, obviously that's part of the world building there's something there's something that there's that, that sound has to do, or, or maybe it's slightly different because this is the second film, as you said, Alex, it's kind of the second film mm. of a trilogy that, that, and one of the things I really appreciated, appreciated about the film, it was like, we're just going to assume you've sort of seen the first one and we're going <laughs> straight into it. And I was watching the first 10 minutes thinking, now, because I haven't seen the first one for a long time and I was, mm. I was trying to figure out whether this is repeated footage back to the future style or whether it's refilmed footage back to the future part two style or what you know all these sorts of things about world building and, and stuff so maybe it's 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 slightly different because it's a fantasy film that's really embracing bracing its franchise status as a second movie and just going with it um mm. anyway yeah i think i think it's interesting because um so janet harfiard in her introduction to the music of fantasy cinema she kind of identifies that really the lord of the rings trilogy is just one film you know, having been shot at the same time, released year on year, her way of sort of categorizing it as a grand epic fantasy yeah. is very much that, that actually that that it's being told in three chapters, but in a similar way to the novel, it's, it's one kind of long narrative. And yeah, I think because of that, the film's having to do a lot. It, it's basically musically, it's picking up on a lot of um a lot of themes that have already been established in the first film and kind of assuming that you remember sort of some of what they mean. It does some reminding you of what they mean and what they represent, but it is, it's, it's picking up and expecting a kind of a, a vocabulary, a sort of a learned vocabulary and understanding or lexicon of, of some of these themes and then introducing a whole bunch more. So over the whole, over all the three themes, oh, sorry, over all three films, there's over a hundred themes, it's about 110. Um, uh, shout out to Doug Adams, who's written the book called The Music of the Lord of the Rings Films, which kind of catalogues these themes. And for anyone who wants some, a nice kind of uh, weighty tome to flick through, then it's the perfect um, 
companion uh, to watching particularly the the extended editions of the films it kind of goes through page by page and tracks all the music so over 100 themes and there's way a lot of them that are introduced pretty much in the second film um so by the end of the second film you've you've, you've got a head full of lots of different interrelated themes that are kind of bounding around and to come back to what you said about the opening you know the very first moments of the film um it's having to do a lot you're right it's it's reminding the viewer of what's gone on at a specific moment previously but even before that, so it opens with the Lord of the Rings title and the and the 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 ring, sorry, the ring theme, the history of the ring theme. Um, before that, we've also got sixteen bars of music, which is it's setting the scene. It's not playing anything specific, uh, specifically thematic, but um, it is also using m- melodic material, which is very similar to Howard Shaw's. Um, previous themes um it's also using harmonic shifts which are kind of a part of the way in which he's already begun to kind of score certain parts of the world um so already the very first music that we hear is kind of recognizably middle earth um in a sense i've written about this in a a fairly cheesily titled article um one does not simply walk into mordor it's it's an article that looks at the music of the opening sequences of the lord of the rings films um in music sound of the moving image and so picking apart those opening moments for me it's those moments that are absolutely paramount um in the success of a film in bringing us not not only kind of straight into the action for the two towers it takes us straight back plunging through uh the snowy mountainside to where gandalf's facing off against the balrog um but it, it the music already is reminding us exactly where and when in the action we are sort of before we've even done that there's also little uh, sort of oral snippets and fragments of of dialogue as well from the previous films. So like Gandalf, um, we hear even before we're kind of situated physically within in the mountain um, in the mines of Moria. So there's various musical and sonic kind of things happening already to sort of bring us straight back into the world and remind us of whereabouts yeah. we are. So it's not just the kind of the ring theme um, but it's way more than that before and after in terms of what the music's doing. And for me, yeah, I think what's what's impressive and effective about this trilogy of films is is the kind of the careful use of certain motifs or the careful use of certain musical ideas and instruments um, for very specific purposes, yeah. um, which to me just shows a, a degree of kind of care and detail that's gone into not only the scoring, but also the ways in which the score is then uh, employed um, in the films. So just to sort of go through some of the kind of more, I don't know, practical concerns of the movie. So we've, mm. we've talked a lot about it's kind of general, how does it how does it sound like a fantasy? And we've talked about kind of ideas of entering the world and things. Let's talk about like, you know, some of the ways in which this bears out in the movie itself. So one mm. of the key jobs we're talking about world building is that the film is is expanding the narrative the narrative is getting more complicated characters are splintering often around so there's there's new nations to introduce there's new races to introduce rohan right being a key one perhaps we should start with that one mm. is how mm. is how is the world of rohan um depicted musically to help set up this kind of whole culture that this this movie in particular seems to rely on us engaging with and embracing and identifying with slightly as we're sort of meant to be there in the in Helm's Deep at the end waiting for this onslaught of orcs. And then I have mm. a question about yeah. kind of how this all ties back to the other stuff, but let's start with what's new about the movie, you know. Mm, you're absolutely right. I think this film, it pivots around 
the kind of the fate of Rohan because kind of the fate of Middle Earth is is kind of pinned upon the fate of Rohan also as part of the kind of the narrative thrust of it. And so Rohan and their themes are, I think, really central. They're actually, so this is my favorite of the three films and the the Rohan sort of music is my favorite part of, of any of the, of Shaw's soundtracks. Um, so there's one sort of key sort of theme, the Rohan fanfare. Um, da, 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 da. We, I should have prepared kind of musical examples no, so I have to sing better. so much. much. <laughs> um, so there's the Rohan fanfare and, um, I mean, it's got this kind of, quite often it's quite a rousing sort of upward movement. It's got horns, it's very brassy, um, but it also has some iterations where it's more kind of fragile. The first few times we hear it, and I mentioned it earlier, when um, Eowyn sort of runs outside and it's all windy and and kind of grey and the, 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 flag, it's all, the flag blows off. And we hear it on uh, the instrument called a hardanger fiddle, which is actually, um, it's kind of a variation on a violin or fiddle. Um, that has what we call sympathetic strings that lie underneath the fingerboard so that they're playing sort of strings uh, in a similar way to a violin but there's other strings that are vibrating and giving extra resonance so this is kind of extra kind of resonance sort of like folk sort of style um, instrument and it's actually um a kind of a norwegian or at least sort of like northern european um, traditional folk instrument which i think pairs up with the kind of norse um, kind of Viking-esque kind of Norse mythology that surrounds the way in which Peter Jackson paints and also Tolkien paints Rohan um, and giving it that sort of musical logic. So even though it's, you know, we're thinking about something which is entirely fantastical, it's it's embedding it within and anchoring it within what is recognisable um, to us to an extent. Not to say that everyone will recognise that sound and be like, ah, oh, that's a hard hanger fiddle, I know that. Um, although some mics, um, also uh, Bear McCreary has made significant use of the Hardanger Fiddle in in his work on the Rings of Power, so it does come back, um, which is quite nice. Uh, in another kind of race of men that might be a sort of a predisposition to to Rohan, but anyway, um, yeah, I think the music of Rohan is really interesting because of that that the sounds, the instruments that are used, and actually the first time that we hear the fanfare in the kind of full brass, the kind of really bold brassy version of this fanfare is actually immediately after um the kind of exorcism of Theoden King so when uh, when he's still sort of under the control of Saruman and and looking very very old uh with cataracts and things uh we only hear the, the Rohan fanfare in kind of a, a solo instrument and it, it's kind of it's more solemn and melancholic whereas immediately after he's he sort of becomes himself again we hear this huge horns and brass kind of iteration of it and so even the way the orchestration even the ways in which the themes are used um is significant and what i also think is interesting is that looking through the different themes that uh howard shaw's creates and actually doug adams relates three of the four kind of rohan themes to eowyn so she has her own kind of little theme there's a theme composed specifically for eowyn and theoden and there's a theme specifically for eowyn and aragorn and their relationship which I think is interesting because I think it provides a different sort of angle, you know, watching either the cinematic release or the extended edition. Eowyn is a character, but for me watching it, she's not necessarily the kind of the central character for Rohan. I think we're watching a group of different people interrelate with the fellowship. But I think musically what Howard Shaw is doing is, is he's positioning us kind of empathically um, 
Um, I think it's interesting how Howard Shaw kind of positions us empathically alongside Eowyn and some of the tensions that she feels in the ways that she relates to the other characters and what's going on. That actually, emotionally, for Howard Shaw, Eowyn is the kind of is the crux and the central part of of what's happening in Rohan, um, which I suppose makes sense when she kind of she comes to save the day somewhat in Return of the King later on. Um, and ends up quite nicely with Faramir, which yeah. is always nice. Spoiler alert for the, whenever you do the Return of the King. Um, so, yeah, I think that's interesting for Rohan and the music, yeah. Uh, what's interesting <laughs> that is that maybe this is just a practical thing, is that you said at the beginning, and, I've, and I made a note to come back to it, it sounded really interesting, that the scoring focuses on groups of peoples and races in particular, and I'm, we're mm-hmm, going to definitely mm-hmm. come to that word in a minute. Mm-hmm. Um, but, 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 but we'll leave <laughs> that for now because we've got an equally a difficult thing to think about, which is gender. So these films are notoriously trying to write a tight warp in that there's basically no women in in other than passing mm-hmm. references in uh, Tolkien's original novels, and the films work hard to try to give the women that are mentioned in the fil- in the books more time, presence, agency for both altruistic and reasons of commerce. Um, so the women are very often individuals because there aren't many of them. We have. Uh, Eowyn and we have um, Arwen and and sort of that's about it. But it sounds like those mm. women are individualised within the score in the way that the male characters are often not, which is an interesting little paradox about uh, what we might say about the role, you know, music contributes to the representation of gender in the film. So I don't know if there's any more you have to say about that, but I just noticed it in your in your comments. Yeah, absolutely. It is interesting. And I think maybe that's either a conscious or subconscious part of the effort to, yeah, to kind of bolster the presence of the female within the film in, in a film, which is like you say, is, is largely sort of male dominated in, in character and, and the, the power of some of those characters and the weight of what they bring to the narrative. So, yeah, I, I do think it's really interesting because having Eowyn musically as that character, and like you said, Arwen also has a theme of her own. She has a song. She also has a moment where she sings. So Liv Tyler sings uh, The Houses of Healing, which mm-hmm. is in the final film, yeah. I believe, The Return of the King. It might even only be an um, extended cut, but hey, I don't even know ah, how they're related. Yes, I think so, you're right. Um... <laughs> I do think you're right. Um, well, yeah, and it is interesting to see, you know, um, specifically kind of female uh, characters being given their own themes and but those themes are sort of you know not not necessarily the most kind of triumphant heroic mm. themes again there are heroic moments in the ways in which uh Shaw uses Eowyn's music um as she you know she is a hero or heroine she she does you know join the battle and obviously she kind of um she wields a sword pretty in a strong way in the final film um the the exception I think is Galadriel mm. Which is interesting in that Galadriel doesn't have her own theme throughout. She appears once in the Two Towers um, at at the point where she's sort of speaking telepathically to Elrond. And uh, at that point, we have the Lothlorien theme, which is her kind of group of elves, the ones in the woods that are a bit more mysterious, not quite sure whose side they're on when we first meet them. Um, And so that's the one, well, that's the one moment, that's the first moment that the Lothlorien theme um is heard alongside Galadriel and so she they're kind of one and the same in a sense that group of elves and Galadriel and then later on uh a a group of elves arrive at Helm's Deep and we hear the Lothlorien theme in full kind of battle armor um in a way that we've not heard it before so yeah in terms of I suppose in terms of gender in the film I think it's quite interesting generally um 
the use of voice is all largely female as well. So the use of kind of voice and vocality by Howard Shaw, there are some male voices um, for orcs and dwarves and what have you. But for elves and all of the kind of soloists, the majority of the, the vocal soloists, um, of which Howard Shaw uses many, um, all tend to be um, female voices. Um, and if we look at the credit songs as well, so Emiliana Torini, who gives the credit song for The Two Towers, and then the first credit song is Enya, the third credit song is um, Annie Lennox. So three very, very strong, uh, kind of in almost instantly recognisable female, specific female voices um, that are, again, I think part of, yeah, the use of female voice throughout all three of the scores, I think, is is significant. Um, and what does that mean? Maybe it's kind of pairing with some of the angelic sort of uh, sort of connotations of the elves, particularly because um, the elves, whether in Rivendell or Lothlorien, are generally accompanied by a kind of female choir or female voice in some way. Um, yeah, yeah, interesting. I mean, just, yeah. We have colleagues like um, uh, Rebecca Harrison, who do, does stuff on like mm. Star Wars, where you know these really interesting empirical data on screen time of women in, in various movies and i think you know to add to that and to continue this conversation it'd be really interesting to do like sound time for different um characters in a film like this to see yeah, yeah, um, yeah. if there's any discrepancy or um uh, or it goes along mm. similar lines yeah yeah mm. i'd like mm. to i'm going to jump in with a with a question about the ambivalent nature because you both you said well uh, dan you said that it's your favorite of the three Alex, did you say it was your favourite of the three or that you just really liked? No, it's my favourite of the three. Yeah, it's my okay. favourite of the three. Um, but you also said at the start that it's quite divisive. So in <laughs> terms of fantasy, um, storytelling perhaps, or because or, I'm thinking about, uh, as I often am, the film's year of release. So it's kind of 2002-ness, which is, I think, super important <laughs> looking at having just written a, a chapter on Die Another Day, the uh, one of <laughs> historically one of the worst Bond films from 2002. Uh, and the kind but of... But the best theme, right? The well, best theme. Well, let's, let's not... That's, we'll get you back <laughs> we on that We have a colleague podcast. that thinks that that's going to be dining out that you just said that, Dan, for, yeah. for years. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Sure. Um, but the, the kind of 2002-ness, thinking about... I think Die Another Day was, was sort of number six in the top grossing films of the year. And all of the others... Mm are these kinds of fantasy movies or space fantasy. So Attack of the Clones, uh, I think the, the the second or third Men in Black, second mm. Men in Black perhaps, um, mm. uh, and, 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 and Lord of the Rings, Two Towers. But I, I'm just sort of, it's, it's, this is coming at a time, presumably, Alex, where fantasy film is, is back on some kind of, um, back on some kind of agenda but at the same time did it do well did it not do well you said it's divisive is oh, that oh, purely did... for for tolkien-esque um fans or is it what, what's going on dad correct me if i'm wrong because i think you're more immersed in fan studies than i am but my my perception is it did I mean, it did very well commercially and it did well critically i think fans generally liked it i think thinking about the trilogy and playing the game of which is the best it doesn't often mm -hmm. come out on top right, and right. I think the main criticism is mm. the classic structural problem of the second act movie which is you sort of know where you start and you sort of know when you end and yet you've got to watch two and a half hours of it um, but that said <laughs> I think the Helm's Deep sequence is still often seen as one of the best of the whole trilogy but it's whether right, the stuff right. before it kind of justifies its stuff I, 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 th I think perhaps because they had to work harder to make the film have stakes and 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 you know yeah. they had to work i think they by their own admission they worked the hardest on this one to kind of get it into shape because it didn't have a natural beginning and end to me that that mm. the, the the filmmaking um 
is is all the richer for it. But um, yeah, um, yeah, people don't no, always like it as much. The the reason I was thinking about it is because going back to what Dan said around sort of communities and different char- characters that are always singular, characters that are always in pairs, groups of characters, and how that might kind of reflect in in some of the the um, sound arrangements. But what struck me about I guess the f- uh, well. A lot of the film, if not all of the film, but certainly I, I saw the nearly three-hour version. No idea if that's the no, that's the extended, nice trim, just the normal cut. Sure, yeah, 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 yeah <laughs> sure. Just the I thought I thought it breezed past as, uh, as I was watching. Um, but the, the 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 different way that you've essentially got three different movies that are almost three different genres. You've got a sort of but a buddy cop kind of comedy between um mary and pippin where they're basically being carried by a big tree um (laughs) and then you've got a more sort of straight fantasy well i guess the other two are kind of more straight fantasies where you have these other you have frodo and sam with with gollum but i think that's doing something different because that's more that seems to be more character based rather than action based and then you even though Gollum is a special effect. There seems to be something about the relationship between all three characters, and, and actually, in particular, what what Gollum does to the relationship between Frodo and Sam. I thought that was really interesting, and and that what what that does to their levels of trust between them. That obviously is set up in the first film. Look at me talking confidently about Lord of the Rings, well Alex. Done. Look at this. Well um, and then the then the sort of more straight fantasy, I think, is the Aragorn, Legolas, um, Gimli, and Gandalf narrative. Even though I don't think Orlando Bloom can act, but maybe that's something for another podcast. Um, he he falls in my category of people that are pretty to look at but can't act. So I don't I'll think put anyone Clive thinks. Owen. Does anyone think Orlando? Okay, good. He can skateboard. No, no, but the, he can skateboard yeah, yeah, and he can uh, shoot sure. arrows, but I'm not sure he can <laughs> yeah. act. Um, <laughs> I had a question. I had a question exactly on that point about about Gollum. That okay. Mm. So if, if we say or if I make a claim that fantasy movies have to work harder. Okay. In terms of a character like Gollum, then. And and the the Gollum theme, if I assume that there is one, I I I'm, I and I'm sure you'll do it for us in a minute. Um, <laughs> but uh, the the sort of is there a difference when scoring? And I don't mean the sound that Gollum makes, which as a as a three dimensional physical or physicalized character that is voiced by Andy Serkis and 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 is whose movement is provided by Andy Serkis, but I more mean this, yeah, mm. the soundtrack, the way in which does the soundtrack have to, to do something different when it's trying to ground a digital character that audiences know aren't there um, or aren't mm. pro-filmic, let's say, versus when they're scoring, um, you said Galadriel doesn't have her own theme, so um, Liv Tyler, Arwen's kind of thing. That, that's doing something different mm. um, because she is a mm. real person. So I just wondered, is that, that kind of relationship reflected or is that that their their fluctuating levels of immateriality let's say uh is that reflected mm. in the in the mm. soundtrack in at all it's really interesting and it's not something that i've thought of much before in terms of Gollum and and his sense of materiality or not and and how yeah how physical we're supposed to feel him i mean the the things that he does uh, they give him that sense of physicality, yep. you know, the, the idea of like biting into a live fish and, yeah, and you know, yeah. all, all of the kind of the close-ups that we see even of his eyes, which is that's uh, in the beginning of Return of the King, you know, things like that, that make make us say, okay, yeah, he is so physical and real. And I think musically, it's not that the music for Gollum, and interestingly, there's two themes, you might imagine, in, in his kind of like two an extended, personalities. An extended sort of. theme, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> a theatrical theme, a made-for-TV theme, whatever, the DVD theme. Uh, yeah, exactly. Carry on. The hidden theme. But yes, yeah. the, no, so the, the Schmeagol Gollum uh, 
distinction. Exactly, exactly. Well. That kind of that kind of that kind of dual personality right, sort right. of element to the character is also musicalized. So there's well, there's there's one which Doug Adams or, or Howard Shaw referred to as the pity of Gollum, and one that's referred to as the menace or, or Gollum's menace. And so there's one which is more kind of Schmeagel's theme, one that's more Gollum's theme. I won't, I won't sing those for you. They're oh, quite chromatic okay. and hard to sing. So you'll have to uh, go and find out yourself. But um, yeah, what's interesting is that I don't think he's doing, they're doing anything which is trying to make him seem more physical in a sense. But I think they're, they're both kind of full of, well, at least the, the pity of Gollum is full of a kind of sorrow, um, a sense of kind of twistedness and a bit of brokenness in terms of the chromaticism and, and kind of some of the chords that it moves between some of the harmonic progressions. So all that, I think that musically he's trying to portray him as a, a, a twisted version of uh, a, a hobbit, basically, which is what he is. He's not he's not a hobbit per se. I forget exactly what kind of... No. Yes, some sort of hobbity thing that probably is in the, the rings of power. <laughs> exactly. He's, he's sort of a derivation of a, a sort of a, a halfling folk. Okay. Um, and, and so 500 years have being spent with the ring sort of tormenting him. He, he has twisted him into this kind of creature that he is. And so I think musically, what Howard Shaw is trying to do, particularly with the pity, pity of Gollum theme, um, is kind of wrap around these kind of sinewy uh, kind of hairs of the theme which which enact on us in a way which is he's kind of creepy but do we sort of pity him and i think emotionally that also plays with with what happens for gollum in this entire film which is do we sort of pity him is he actually treacherous yeah. or do we feel a bit sorry for for his his scenario um and the power that the ring has kind of held over him and, and that's the journey that frodo goes on as well which is one of sort of starting to pity him because frodo starts to understand and experience what a little bit of what he's been through so yeah. i think musically it is quite interesting there's one final theme as well another golem theme which is the song uh, the credit song um that comes over the the end credits sung by emiliana torini um and that's quite interesting because it it kind of smooths over the the closing sequence the, the very end of the film is kind of uh frodo and samwise kind of talking about where they're going and uh and Gollum agreeing to lead them to Mordor. And then we see this kind of uh, the return of Gollum as opposed to Smeagol saying, oh, we could take them to, we could let her do it. Dum, dum, dum. Um, and it's at that point that we start to hear the music of Gollum's song for a, for a good minute before the song sort of is sung by Emiliano Torini over the end credits. And again, it just smooths over the end of the film as the camera kind of moves up and we see Mordor in the distance, which I think is also a key part of it being the middle film you know the kind of the second of three that musically is trying to give us an ending but not an abrupt this is the end ending um a, a smoother transition into the credits which i think also enables a continued kind of inhabitation of that world it's not saying right it's finished get out but it's saying this film is finishing um and i think the end credits uh, as the films are long the credits for the films are very long in fact the end credits for the extended edition of Return of the King is, I think, 26 or 28 minutes of credits, um, which is amazing. Um, and musically, for me, that does something interesting as well, because it leaves it very much up to the viewer to decide when they want to, I suppose, imaginatively leave the world. It's mm. continuing to build the world and say it's still here if you want to, you know, um, 
if you want to just perceive and consider uh, and reflect on the film and reflect on the world. Um, but then again, that's something which is being undone by Netflix and other streaming services when they say, it's finished, watch this now. Mm -hmm. um, don't watch the credits and you have to opt into them. I'm sure you've maybe discussed that before, but um, yeah, the end the end credits and, and particularly kind of Gollum as, a, as one of the central figures musically, the, the themes also start to twist into the ring theme and into the, some of the Mordor themes as well. So there are, again, really interesting interrelations between Gollum's themes and some of the other ones that show the effect of the ring and the effect of, um, I suppose, yeah, Mordor and Sauron on Gollum. It's realistically. I have one mm. more topic that I'd like us to cover before we sort of say our goodbyes. Race? But yes, which is race. I think I think it's important right. because we. I'm not sure we'll do justice to it in the time we've got left, but um, <laughs> or indeed if Another we had podcast. all the time in the world. But um, uh, mm. yes. Um, so, y uh, hmm. so we've mentioned some buzzwords that are probably worth pulling together and having a chat about. Which is, you know, mm. Dan, you've made the point which I hadn't thought about, but it's a really good one that that a lot of the motifs are linked to race uh, and mm -hmm. different. Uh, you know, whether it's the Rohans versus Gondorians, but also I'm assuming the Orcs have a theme, the Urukai have a theme, all this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, we've mm -hmm. mentioned Wagner, uh, and I know um, uh, uh, I know Howard Shaw has mentioned this kind of his, his 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 this could be his opportunity to write a kind of Wagnerian opera, right? Uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. So, um, and I know obviously Tolkien, and there's books on this. I think Susan Young's Race in Fantasy Literature is a really good one. Mm -hmm. um, that talks about kind of, you know, based the racist um, uh, structure of something like Lord of the Rings in that in that what gives a character um, moral worth is usually defined by race rather than by uh, uh, character. At least that's true of the bad characters. I'm not quite sure that's always true of the humans in particular, but certainly elves have a certain quality. Hobbits have a certain quality. Uh, orcs certainly have a certain quality. So race, music, Dan... What is there to say more? But obviously, there's something tricky and problematic going on that we could we could unpack here. Or is there? <laughs> I mean, yeah, there is. I suppose, I suppose, race per se is, uh, with regards to kind of Lord of the Rings, something that I've I've not kept at arm's length, but I haven't sort of like dived straight into. Um, I do think it's interesting. What I what I like and appreciate is that there are kind of relations, as I've said, between kind of elves so not only it's not like all elves have the same music but there are sort of instrumentational or vocal similarities between the music of the different elves similarly there's also the use of uh similar intervals in music theory so a minor sixth which is uh, features heavily in Lothlorien Rivendell and then also in the Hobbit Tauriel and uh, some of some of the other kind of elven characters that kind of continue and so there's some quite pleasing uh, kind of sort of links and again sort of things between like the Urukai for Isengard all being in 5-4 and some of these kind of minor stepwise movements um, in the Urukai and also the Orcs um, and some of the Mordor and Ringwraith sort of things. There are sort of quite pleasing links which for what Jason Mattel would call the forensic fan the forensic viewer or or for me forensic listener if you dig in there are these kind of pleasing links which i think link to this sense of sort of grand epic scoring but um yeah in terms of race i mean the thing that does come to mind is some of the music for the hobbits um and some of the kind of i suppose more the idea not not of race but of sort of national nationality and national folk music and some of the music by plan nine being this kind of cod celtic sort of folk um everything for the hobbits and i suppose this is more relating to the fellowship of the ring but what we have 
um, diegetic music for the hobbits and their parties and things is all kind of all of these uh, hurdy-gurdies and mouth organs and juice harps and things like this um, <clears throat> where there's a kind of a, a a kind of a shorthand which could be deemed sort of lazy um, whereas are we is Peter Jackson trying to depict the hobbits as as Irish or Celtic or Scottish in this kind of countryside which is is it supposed to be New Zealand or is it supposed to be this kind of bucolic English sort of stereotypical kind of view and and how does that work for national and transnational audiences as well um Martin Barker um, did some absolutely fantastic work obviously on the audience reception and particularly kind of national audiences for for Lord of the Rings and what interests me is is um, I, I dug into some of his databases actually and was looking for mentions of music and how people thought about and responded to the music of those three films um, related to their kind of nationality and what have you. Um, and that was a while ago, so I can't remember the kind of interesting things that I did find. But yeah, I find that interesting to think about what are some of the representations within music where there is a clear shorthand to is this a kind of a, a Celtic culture which is being um referenced and if so why and is that effective or is it yeah what's it doing there interesting questions chris do you have uh no anything? i because I, I know the i was thinking about i was thinking about orcs and i i, I wrote down as part of my notes um <laughs> i wrote down the idea of kind of orcs as indigenous communities and i was thinking about who owns the land essentially especially in new zealand a space a place like new zealand and 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 the way that the film maybe maybe defines doesn't define whiteness but defines non-whiteness or blackness in the mm. case of the orcs but but mm-hmm. thinking about the role of indigenous communities and, and given how th- how this film is about moving through land and moving through space and then obviously the battle at the end is about protecting one's land and and the whole na- overarching narrative of um Saruman's art and all this sort of stuff the 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 eye that looks over the the space i was just just thinking about the the this, essentially you're thinking about locality both in relation to the production of these films and it's New Zealand this again but also local knowledge who owns the land who the land belongs to and, and how that fits in with the, a depiction of of um, the Urukai and g- given given if one would represent or think about representing them as non-white bodies what that then says about them and their relationship to the land if they are mm. the they are the sacrificial community. I, I don't know. There's just something around. I was just thinking about indigenous communities and 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 yeah. and be, so be pushing ideas, pushing it beyond Orientalism to think about their relationship to the land and what what this army of essentially white bodies who have flown to New Zealand. I don't know. There's just something provocative yeah, about well, that, that I don't have the answer to. There's but. a there's a way of reading this entire story as a, you know. I mean, Tolkien describes this as kind of faux history as a kind of faux white supremacist history, where actually it's mm. it's it because the the orcs are are colonizers in this movie, just sort of narratively speaking. So there is a way of reading this entire movie as kind of white supremacist alternative history, where it's actually the white people that get colonized rather than oh. uh, you know. white white people are the victims at last. Yeah, exactly. Right, okay. My only two cents on this, and it's a question I've said on the podcast without an answer to, and I don't have an answer to it today. I'm trying to think through issues of ethics and representation in relationship to fantasy in my own work, and I haven't got a good answer to it yet. But my only question to pose is that I'm always, this is why I was keen to push back on ideas of believability, because I think this this is key, is that if, 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 a, if a film has an ideological power, then 
that's because the fantasy involved in ideology is used to affirm a truth or 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 a believed truth or a perceived mm-hmm. truth mm-hmm. so we believe if we believe um a fantasy film if the fantasy is believable then its ideological power um becomes effective and and therefore problematic if we if we're reading it in these terms if we don't mm. believe the fantasy if the fantasy is there to be disbelieved that's a very different spectatorial relationship and i'm not saying that i'm not posing this question to therefore say fantasy films can't be racist i'm just saying they are if they are racist they're racist in in slightly different terms to a realist film because the their mm. ideological effect is achieved through their ability to evoke imagination and disbelief rather than their ability to evoke belief so if mm. an orc mm. is racist it's also impossibly racist and i'm not sure what we do with that um what the answer to that yeah. question is it might mm. make them even worse but it, 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 i don't i don't know I, i'm i'm uncomfortable with the idea that you can just map representation as you yeah. would in a in a in a in a yeah. in a, in a <clears throat> mimetic tr- drama onto something yeah. like this and it works the same My and i think to to bring that into uh, back to the kind of like yeah, musical yeah, yeah. frame as well there's a sense in which i mean it, there's a sort of necessity well not necessity but part of the expectations of kind of the scoring of a western blockbuster is to use like you know an, an or- a symphonic orchestra and orchestral instruments and and those instruments are deemed kind of familiar and effective and they each have their own sort of connotations that they bring with them from centuries of of representative history but then it means that howard shaw when he wants to music something which is other there there, there is another ring and exoticism for both kind of the elves and also for for mordor or i forget what what they're called the kind of eastern sort of men mm. the men from the east who come and help mordor um so the elves there are some kind of like eastern instruments i think it's this uh a sarangi which is used um kind of like a, a bowed instruments in, in from indian classical music which is used for some of the elf music and some other kind of um and blown flutes and then for uh for the kind of the eastern eastern men i forget what they're called um again a kind of a bowed sitar uh there's a writer which is a horn used in mordor and so each of these instruments which are kind of eastern in origin being used to kind of for very clearly sort of exoticist purposes um mm. and yeah, some of that doesn't necessarily sit all that well with me because it's catering for a very specific audience and listenership um, to say these things that you can hear, these are the bad guys. Oh, and also they are all sort of yeah. instruments from the yeah, Middle yeah, East yeah. or Asia. So, and, and presumably there's a, a kind of contribution of visual effects here because in relation to the kinds of bodies that fantasy films choose to hide, augment or keep as they are. So... Aragorn looks like Viggo Mortensen. There's no, there's no extra bit to him that hides his white masculinity. There are, however, certain bodies in the film that the, 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 the certain bodies that the film chooses to mm. um, hide or to refigure in ways that perhaps. So, so I, I guess the the point here is that that in a, in an age where people's everybody occupies different proximities to humanity not a, human is not a category that is afforded to everybody because communities are fighting for their lives to matter communities are fighting to not be called cockroaches and all these kinds of all these kinds of derogatory terms so in an era when everybody's proximity to humanity is very very different and varies wildly from country to country uh, or neighborhood to neighborhood um fantasy 
in its register of making foreign and making alien versus preserving human has to then again has to take on different because fantasy cinema through its visual effects is making discriminations about people's proximity to a recognizable humanity because it's saying we're going to keep Viggo Mortensen as as he Mm. is because you Alex you mentioned commerce earlier because he's a handsome man that will look good in the middle of a poster and actually that is and 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 Liv Tyler and you know there's discriminations that are being made about about beauty and glamour that are highly racialized versus the kinds of bodies that are hidden behind prosthetics or that are even made to look Mm -hmm. like non-white bodies so I think that that fantasy's use of special effects and visual effects sort of feeds into a broader discourse of how humanity is not a category that is afforded to everybody because that is played out visually in fantasy films all the time Mm. yeah okay i think we're gonna have to leave the listeners with lots of different thoughts there maybe we can return to it well i'm sure we will at some we'll do an extended cut alex (laughs) and then we'll we'll you know for the dvd one for the dvd as long as there's more songs because i've really enjoyed um thinking about it in terms of of sound uh i'm sure we skimmed the surface there but i think i've I've learned a lot so i'm sure listeners did too so dan this is this is part of a a a wider book project that's currently sort of ongoing slash near to completion is it so Mm. just tell us a little bit about that before we go so that listeners can be primed to purchase it when it's uh, available yeah yeah so it's a book that basically um it kind of is bringing together some of my work on the franchises of lord of the rings including the hobbit um and rings of power and harry potter including fantastic beasts and then so it looks at um film and, and starts off its first three chapters are based in film and then the last three chapters look at kind of transmedia so theme parks trailers video games plays fandom um particularly and kind of tourism so um yeah it's kind of it's focusing a lot of the stuff that we've been talking about uh, kind of musical world building um and the central idea of home and actually the reason that perhaps fantasy and, and the way that music works in these fantasy franchises is by creating a recognizable and in, an inhabitable sense of home that keeps people coming back um and you know hogwarts legacy has just come out a couple of weeks ago and people are still well some people um are still kind of flocking to it um to kind of inhabit it so yeah uh, it might be cap- it might be called something like sounds like home uh, it's going to be in the ashgate screen music um series perhaps later this year so 2023 hopefully we'll see right we'll keep an eye out for that and uh, make sure we get some Thanks. of our reading lists and everyone else on their reading lists um <laughs> terrific well dan thank you so much for coming on the podcast and chatting uh, two towers with us Thank you so much for having me. I've had a, a very, very great time. Um, so thank you again. Thank you. Yeah, no, ditto, absolutely. Really great to revisit the movie and, and loved, loved, really enjoyed to do it that way. Um, yeah, well, if you, if listen, we kind of went, we, like the film itself, we went straight in without catching you up there. But if, he, if listeners would want to catch up on The Fellowship of the Ring, that's in our archive. You can access it um, at fantasy-animation.org. If you've got anything to say about any of the things we've raised, you can contact us via the Contact Us forum or at our email address, Fan anim research, F-A-N-A-N-I-M research at gmail.com. And you can use the same handle to find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, as long as tech mm. uh, conglomerates uh, keep it that way. Um, yeah, uh, otherwise, that's been us for an episode, and we'll see you next time. Bye.